Shall we continue in sin? In Romans chapter 6 and verse number 1, the Apostle Paul asks a question that I think cuts to the very heart of our relationship with God. And that is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What shall we say then? This kind of seems like a loaded question when you think about it. You know, sometimes a reporter will ask a loaded question to a politician or you know, somebody might say, you know, President Trump, what do you think about your administration's failure to act on this certain issue? And by answering the question at all, he's admitted that his administration has failed. You know, it's, it's asked with the intent of deceiving or with the intent of tricking. This question is not asked with the intent of deceiving, but asked with rather the intent of revealing truth and shedding light on our relationship with God, the nature of God's grace, and the a soul, the behavior of a soul that is transformed by the saving power of the gospel. As we consider this question, I first want to think about the first question in this sentence, and that is, what shall we say then? Because this implies that he's continuing a thought that he's been talking about. It's like the word therefore. And so what we're going to do this morning is go into a detailed study of the first five chapters of the book of Romans to answer this question. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. But what we are going to do is have a little bit of recap about the first part of the book of Romans, what Paul is talking about, and how it leads into this question, shall we continue in sin? Paul starts off of the first several chapters talking about sin in general. Um, He talks about the Gentiles and the fact that they're under sin. He talks about the Jews, and despite the fact that they're under the law of Moses, they're under sin. And he concludes sort of all this thought in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, and he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And so Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, it doesn't matter if you're a Greek, it doesn't matter if what your ethnicity is or what your background is or what your heritage is, you are under the curse of sin. And there's nothing you can do about it in and of yourself. doesn't matter if you have the law, if you don't have the law. So what he then does is he gives us the solution to that, and that is Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What he tells us is there's none, who does, there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all under the curse of sin. There's nothing you can do about it, and that's why we need the righteousness of God because there's really no such thing as the righteousness of me or of you. There's no such thing. So we need to be partakers of the righteousness of God. The way we do that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And this phrase in verse 24, justified freely by his grace. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the study this morning, and we're going to come back to that later. But this is the answer to sin. Now, he goes on to talk about this concept of being justified by faith, and he uses the example of Abraham to show that. A lot of times we think that justification by faith is a New Testament idea only, and that is not the case. And so he goes to the example of Abraham. In Romans 4, verse 19, he says, And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and and the deadness of Sarah's womb. 
He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. So what we're seeing here is this idea of justification by faith applied to Abraham. Now, Abraham was a good man in his own way, but he made mistakes. And so Abraham was not justified or accounted righteousness because of the way that he lived his life per se, but rather the way that he responded in faith to the promises of God. God made certain promises to Abraham, and Abraham believed those promises, and therefore it was accounted unto him for righteousness. So he was justified not by his own works, but by faith. It's not just a New Testament idea. These people didn't have the New Testament, and so Paul was relating this concept to them by the example of Abraham. Now, he continues on in verse five, sort of concluding all these thoughts. He says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he's saying is here, the abounding power of grace. This should be a comforting thought to all of us. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You know, he, he talks about the law entered that the offense might abound. That, you might read that and think, well, does that mean that sin happened because God gave us the law? No, what that means is that the law revealed the true sinful nature of his people. The, the nation of Israel didn't know exactly how sinful they were until the law was revealed to them. It didn't cause them to sin. It just simply revealed the fact that, yes, we are sinners. And it revealed the, the need that we have for Jesus Christ. And so where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, and the grace of God can forgive any sin. And that's exactly true. And praise God that, that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Through Jesus Christ, through his righteousness. And so as we consider all this and the light of the original question that was asked this morning, shall we continue in sin? In light of the powerful nature of God's grace, in light of the fact that I'm sinful and can't do anything about it of my own and I have to have Jesus Christ in order to forgive my sins and it's only through the grace of God that it covers my sins, why can't I just sin anyway and let the grace of God abound more? Isn't that a logical thing to assume? Apparently Paul was afraid of that. What was his answer? Certainly not. King James Version says, God forbid, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it. Paul emphatically and categorically denies the suggestion of committing sin in order that grace may abound even more. Why does he say that? Well, he answers this question by asking another question. And this is the standard evangelist way to answer a question. Right, Brother Craig? You ask a question to answer a question. It used to frustrate me a little bit, but you know, it's a good way to lead someone to truth is to ask them questions about their own beliefs. I think you'd find, especially in apologetics, when you're talking to someone about you know, the existence of God and what they believe, asking them questions about their own belief and where that leads, it can lead to the truth, and that does so here as well. He says, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we're buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Newness of life means not living in sin, Right? He's using baptism to show us why we are no longer to be living in sin. And make no mistake, we're talking about living in sin, no longer living in it. 
not occasionally stumbling and committing a sin. There's, two, there's a difference there. Because as we all understand, none of us are perfect. And we therefore cannot live our lives without committing sin. But there's a difference between that and living in sin. And a willful acknowledgement of what I'm doing is sin, but it's okay because the grace of God is there. And he says, our baptism, when that happened, and by the way, he's not teaching them about the essential nature of baptism here. That's not his goal. He's assuming they already believe that. He's talking to people who have been baptized. And what he's saying is, when you were baptized, and that act of faith covered your sins in the blood of Jesus, you should have been raised to walk a new creature, a new person, no longer living in sin. And so he drills down even deeper to that with the next few verses. Verse five, he says, if we've been, pl- been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. So he's taking this analogy just a little bit further and explaining what actually happens when we're baptized. Baptism isn't just symbolize the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It does that, but it doesn't just do that. What baptism also does, if we're doing it in faith, is that it unites us together with Jesus. And so we're united together in the death of Jesus, and we're united in his resurrection. That means it doesn't just symbolize it, but it makes us partakers of his death and partakers of his resurrection. And so he says in verse eight, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and he did not die again. He couldn't go back to the person. The person he was before could die. The person that was raised from the dead could not die. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what he's saying here is that if we truly are partakers in the death of Jesus and are truly our partakers in the resurrection of Jesus, then we no longer should be under sin, living in sin. Continuing on, verse 12 through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. He's talking about setting up sin as a king in our lives. Do not let sin reign over you like a king would reign over you. You don't have to obey that anymore. Rather, you present your members as instruments of, excuse me, he says, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness of sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. So just as Jesus, just as death no longer has dominion over him, sin no longer has dominion over you and I. Sin shall not have dominion over you, and he brings it back around to grace, for you are not under law, but under grace. And so rather the answer then is not, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's like, no, we don't, we don't continue in sin because of grace. It's because of the grace of God that we are no longer under sin. And we need to learn to die to sin and live to God. Paul's dealing with two extreme schools of thought here. On the one hand, we have what I've called abusing grace. And that is this idea that God's grace is so big and great, and I can't do anything myself anyway, so I can just live how I want and God's grace will cover it. 
Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6 says, It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. What he's saying here, he's describing someone who's been saved, someone who's been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, partakers of the Holy Spirit. That's someone who's had their blood, their sins washed in the blood of Christ. But he says what they are doing then is abusing that grace because they fall away. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. What is repentance? It means turning away from sin. They've fallen again into sin. They're continuing in sin that grace may abound, but that doesn't work. Because when we do that, we crucify again for ourselves the Son of God and we put him to an open shame. The other school of thought here, the idea of falling from grace. Well, how is that different from what we've already talked about? Well, let's read. Let's think about this. I think a lot of times when we think about our baptism, obeying the gospel, we often think of it in terms of a second chance. We think of it in terms of God wiping the slate clean. And the, and the gospel is so much more than that. It's not simply God giving us a second chance and saying, okay, you've been baptized, your sins have been forgiven, now try again. Because guess what? I'm not gonna be any better at it the second time than I was the first time. And so it's not a matter of me being baptized and then saying, now I've gotta live my life right in order to stay saved. That's not what it's about. We read in Galatians chapter five, verse three, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Now, I recognize he's dealing specifically here with people going back to the law of Moses. But this applies to anyone who attempts to by law. Anyone who says, whether it's going back to the law of Moses and saying, I have to be circumcised in order to be, to be forgiven, or whether it's someone that says, the slate's wiped clean and now I have to live my life the best that I can now in order to stay saved. Either way, we're falling from grace because we're no longer trusting in the saving power of Jesus. At that point, we're back to trusting ourselves and it's a losing battle. Where does that leave us? How do we die to sin and live to God? If we're saved by grace through faith, why does Paul insist on obedience? And if obedience can't save us because we're imperfect, what part does it play in our salvation? Is why we obey and how we are able to obey just as important as the fact that we are obeying? These are all some pretty deep questions, and I think the answers are found in the gospel. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now let's consider what Paul's saying here. He goes on to tell them what the gospel is. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the saving power of God. Now, what he's saying here is, I preached the gospel to you, and you received it. What does that mean? That means they obeyed the gospel. They were baptized and had their sins washed in the blood of Jesus. But listen to what he says here. He says, in which you stand, 
and by which also you are saved. He's speaking in present tense here. He doesn't say the gospel saved you. He said the gospel saves you. You're currently standing. Our salvation at the point of baptism is not a one and done thing. It's not. And listen to what he says next. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you. Now, this is a conditional statement. You are saved if you do this. If you do what? If you hold fast that word which I preached to you. What's the word he preached to them? The gospel. And so we see the gospel saves us at the point of our baptism, and the gospel continues to save us after our baptism as well. It's not a one-and-done thing. Our obedience to Jesus after our baptism is like our obedience in baptism. It's an act of faith, and it's an act in trusting in his saving power and not on our own righteousness. So what does this look like in real life? You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross, or the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In fact, if you back up, this verse here which says, which, by which also you are saved, the ESV says, by which you are being saved, or we are being saved. So that just shows we are being saved still by the message of the cross, which is the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. So if you don't take any other passage away with you today, please take this passage home with you and study it and memorize it and learn it, because this is where the truth of all this comes together, where obedience and grace meet and harmonize. For Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God, that's Jesus Christ, that's the gospel, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So yes, we are saved in baptism, but then what does he say about that grace? He said that grace teaches us, in verse 12, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what he's saying here is the grace of God, the gospel, has appeared, and it's brought salvation to us, but it doesn't just stop there. And he tells us what role obedience plays in all this. And the role that it plays is the, the gospel teaches us. The grace of God teaches us how to live this way. It teaches us denying ungodliness, denying worldly lusts, living soberly, righteously, and godly. What is that? It's obedience. It's not living in sin. It's dying to sin and living to God. All these things are a result of our salvation, not the cause of it. And how has it become a result of our salvation? Read verse 14 again. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Why? We're justified freely by his grace, right? Remember I asked you to, to think about that? justified freely by the grace of God. It doesn't cost me anything, but it cost him everything. It cost him all that he had. It cost him his blood. It cost him his life. And for us to look at the grace of God and say, I can continue in sin that grace may abound. 
because it doesn't cost me anything. I'm justified freely. No, it doesn't cost you anything, but it costs him everything. And every time we go back to living in sin, we crucify again for ourselves the Son of God, and we put him to an open shame. And when we can come to the realization in our minds, brothers and sisters, that we are here for one reason and one reason alone, and that's because Jesus Christ gave everything for us, that's not just informative, that's transformative. That causes changes in people's hearts, and that causes changes in people's lives and the way that we behave and not living in sin. I heard a story recently about a young lady who was at a job had a good career, and she made a mistake, pretty bad mistake, like job-ending, career-ending kind of mistake. And her supervisor went to management and said, listen, she made a mistake, but she made this mistake because I didn't train her properly. If you're gonna punish anybody, punish me. Young lady kept her job. The, man, the supervisor kept his job too, but he paid a price. He took a hit. And this was bum-fuzzling to the young lady. She's like, why did he do this? And she went to him and asked him, why did you do this for me? Why did you step in and, and take this for me? He didn't have to. And those of you who have worked in corporate America know how rare this type of behavior is. Why would this man risk his career for this young lady when very easily he could have just said, yeah, you made the mistake, you're fired. And she pestered him and he said, forget about it, don't worry. She kept asking, I gotta know why you did this. And I don't, I don't know if it's humorous or not, but basically she finally drug it out of him. He said, okay, I'm a Christian. <laughs> like he was afraid to admit it or he didn't want to admit it or something. But he said, listen to me, Jesus Christ did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And if I can find some small way of repaying that to someone else. She said, where do you go to church? That's the kind of action and power that changes lives. And that man was able to show just a small glimpse of what Jesus did for us. And when you and I, brethren, can come to the realization of what Jesus really means to us, that's when it'll start to transform our lives. Romans chapter 12, one and two says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What is he talking about here? He's talking about obedience. He's talking about not living in sin. And he tells you how to do that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There has to be a change in our heart and our mind. There has to be a point when we realize and look at Christ and what he's done for us, and that is when our life will start to change. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. What are you seeking today? What draws your attention where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Listen, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's a parallel passage to Romans 6 right there. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How do we do it? It's not some mystical formula that allows us to do this. It's not some miraculous thing that happens when we're baptized. It's simply coming to a full realization of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. It's a change of mind. What do we set our thoughts on? What do we set our affections on? Setting our thoughts on things that are above? Does that mean I set my thoughts on the word of God? Yes, we need to set our thoughts on the word of God because that's how we get to know Jesus. But remember, it's all about Jesus. It's all about setting our things above where Christ is. 
always remembering the gospel, never forgetting it's because of his shed blood, his death and his resurrection that we have hope. Always setting our thoughts on that. And then that causes us to go to his word and it causes us to study and want to be like him. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Where does our motivation for obedience come from? It should come from this. Jesus didn't say, if you keep my commandments, then I'll love you. Jesus didn't say, we'll see how things go once I see where you are and the way you behave. He loved us first. We love him because he first loved us. God didn't give Israel the law and then lead them out of Egypt. He delivered them out of Egypt and then gave them the law. God doesn't give us a law and say, follow this law and then I'll save you. God saves us and says, now follow this law. Remember what I've done for you. Do you love Jesus? The more time we spend in his word, the more time we learn about him, the more time we spend contemplating and meditating on the fact that he gave everything for us. I was talking to Brother Danny about this sermon and we kind of agreed that at this point, it may sound a little Calvinist to you, so don't, please don't take it that way. But brethren, when we come to this realization of who Jesus is and what he really means to us, it's almost impossible to live in sin. Not that we don't ever commit sin, but having that realization, we can overcome anything. When this becomes the most important thing to us, when our love for Jesus eclipses every single thing in our lives, at that point, you and I have the power to be transformed into a new creature. If there's a problem in your life, a sin that you're experiencing, a temptation you face, a trial you're going through, and you find yourself having difficulty overcoming that, we can talk about the wither twos and the wafors. We can go to the word of God and study and find a pathway out of that. But at the end of the day, if you can't overcome a sin, it's because you love that sin more than you love Jesus, period. If I can't overcome something in my life, it's because I love that more than I love Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How do you die to sin and live to God? You become united with Christ, united in his death, that old man of sin crucified, united in his resurrection, raised to walk in newness of life. And you do that by having a mind for Christ and a love for Christ. That's how we die to sin and that's how we live to God. What an amazing gift of love that we've been given Without him, we can truly be nothing. The greatest moral life any individual in this room can ever live is not enough, and all the moral acts in the world without the love of Christ backing them means nothing. The gospel has saved us, and the gospel continues to save us as we walk with Jesus. It teaches us how to die to sin, and it teaches us how to live to God. I want to consider the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. He says, But God be thanked that though you were the slaves of sin, you have obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. 
Now, there's a whole other sermon in the last part of Romans 6. We're not going to get to today, obviously. But listen to what he says here. God be thanked that you were the slaves of sin, yet you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. He's talking about baptism. He's talking about obeying the gospel. He's talking about dying to sin and living to God. And having been set free from sin, you became the slaves of righteousness. Now you serve a different master. You don't serve sin anymore. Now you serve Jesus. And your continued obedience to him is a result of the motivation we receive by understanding the implications of all that he is to us and what we can be only because of what he's done for us and for no other reason. If you've not obeyed the gospel this morning, the church begs you to consider dying to sin and living to God. Take that step of faith this morning. Obey from the heart that form of doctrine and begin dying to sin today. If you need the prayers of the church for any reason, if you're subject to the gospel call, have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.